Today on episode number 282 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Mike Wesch is back, this time to talk about using challenges to motivate learners. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and also be more present for our students. I'm excited to be welcoming back to the show, Mike Wesch. He has been reintroduced to me through my partnership with the Association of College and University Educators, or AQ. AQ's courses and community site feature many of teaching and learning's top experts, faculty developers, and practitioners to showcase evidence-based teaching practices. And for more than three years now, AQ has connected me with great guests for the show. And to learn more about AQ's featured experts and institutional partnerships, visit their website, acue.org. Mike West has been dubbed the prophet of an education revolution by the Kansas City Star. Wesh is internationally recognized as a leader in teaching innovation. The New York Times listed him as one of 10 professors in the nation whose courses, quote, mess with old models and added that they give students an experience that might change how they think, what they care about, or even how they live their lives. His videos have been viewed over 20 million times translated into over 20 languages, and are frequently featured at international film festivals and major academic conferences worldwide. Wesch has won several major awards for his work, including the U.S. Professor of the Year Award from the Carnegie Foundation, the Wired Magazine Rave Award, and he was named an Emerging Explorer by National Geographic. Mike Wesch, welcome back to Teaching in Higher Ed. Hey, it's great to be here. You may or may not know this, you're such an educational hero to me, and I'm so honored to get to have this follow-up conversation with you, but I feel like I've been getting to follow some of the things that you've been doing and some of the things that you've been thinking about. Would you start by talking a bit about your thinking around the language of how you describe things in your classes? And I'm specifically in this case thinking about, I believe you don't use the word homework or assignments. You have a different way of thinking about that language. Talk a little bit about that background. Yeah, so me and my colleague, Ryan Klataski, started realizing that assignments weren't quite working because people just think of them as something they have to do. And so then we started playing with the idea of experiments, and so we had students doing experiments. And then we finally settled on the idea of challenges, and that just seemed to click. And that also like helped us think about what we wanted to create for those challenges. So instead of thinking of them as just assignments, we started thinking like, well, what really is a challenge? And not just in the sense of what would be difficult, but also, you know, challenge has that sense of adventure and, and fun. And we set the goal of creating assignments, I'll put assignments in quotes here, <laughs> that would actually be so interesting and fun and useful that people would want to do them over and over again. And we've currently have 10 challenges as part of our course. And I'd say maybe at least half of them have reached that threshold where we find students are actually coming back and doing them again and again, even though they're not 
technically assigned. And uh, that, that to me is the sign of success. And so we want to keep revising our challenges until we get all 10 of them as something that people really want to do. I have such fond recollections of a sociology professor when I was in college, and he would do similar things, although I crack up because I managed to get A's in all of my sociology classes, and it was all about writing why I couldn't do whatever was being assigned. And I'm sure you're very familiar with these kinds of things, like go into an elevator, crowded elevator, and stay facing the wrong direction. Or he had one around driving where you're supposed to drive. I I suspect he probably couldn't get away with this today, but you're supposed to break the social norms of driving. Do you have students who, who end up where they they aren't able to push themselves through to the challenge, or is that not allowed in these cases? Well, it's pretty rare because we don't have anything that's quite like that. Yeah. Um, I, I'm, I'm very familiar with the sociology work. And in fact, one of our challenges is named after a book called The Un-TV in the 20 Mile Per Hour Car, mm-hmm. which are some of these experiments that come from sociology. So we have one called The Un-Thing rather than The Un-TV. And that, that allows people to decide what they give up for you know, the week or so. So some students give up their cell phones, some students give up chairs, some give up shoes, you know, all kinds of different things. So we try to make the bar for participation really low. And uh, we try to provide lots of options. So everybody feels like they have some way of participating. So it's very rare that we get somebody saying that they just can't do it. Because when we get that, we just invent some alternative and try to keep inventing alternatives until it, it works for everybody. Take us into the classroom when you first describe these challenges to your students. Mm, well, I've always felt like I have to sell it in a way that like, I, if these are truly worth doing for anybody, then I should be doing them too. <laughs> so man, the first challenge, nobody's ever asked me that, but it's quite a story really. The first challenge was just as pure anthropology as you can be. So I teach anthropology and, you know, the main thing we do in cultural anthropology is fieldwork. So the, of course, the first challenge was just go do fieldwork somewhere locally, like put yourself in a situation you wouldn't normally be in, immerse yourself in this culture for about an hour and then write about it. And I pitched this to the students and I I told them, you know, I want all of these to be worthwhile and fun and interesting. And, and so I'm going to do them myself to make sure they're worthwhile, fun and interesting. So what do you guys think I should do? And, and they said, well, you should come out with us. <laughs> you know, and So they invited me out for the night. And I was like, man, I haven't seen the hours of 11 p.m. to 3 a.m. for like 10 years because I at that time I had a 10 year old and I just hadn't been out in all that time. So they basically took me out and gave me a tour of college life. And I you know, did all kinds of things. I went to a frat party. I went dancing down in the Ville, as they call it, Aggieville. And it was really fun. We made it, we ended up making a podcast about it. I went back and interviewed a bunch of students that I met throughout the night. At the frat party, I stumbled across a couple who had, were meeting for the first time. And now it's, you know, three and a half years later, they're still together. <laughs> so mm. oh, so wow. I went and documented that. I went and interviewed them. You know, I just saw them, you know, talking for the first time and I knew both of them. And so then I went back and interviewed them and it turned out that they had uh, really hit it off that night and then <laughs> they were, now they're still together. So that was a fun night and really set the tone, I think, for, for me and thinking about how powerful these challenges could be. In fact, there was a revelation I had that night when I was out dancing and I just couldn't dance, you know, cause I'm, you know, <laughs> 40 plus and married and uh, it was just very weird to be around a bunch of 20 year olds dancing. And I really wanted to dance because as part of anthropology, you know, we want to 
participate and really feel what it feels like to be in that moment. But I just couldn't do it. You know, I was just like, just locked down. And I, I met this Chinese student down there, a Chinese international student, and he was just total flow, just amazing, amazing dancer. And he took me under his wing and showed me a few moves and eventually got me moving. And once I started moving, I realized just how important it was to immerse yourself and to move and to participate. And I, it stuck in my head at that moment that my students and I can't just learn by thinking. Like you really have to, you have to live your way into a new way of thinking. And that really resonated with me. And, and that became sort of a motto for our course was this idea that we're trying to teach things that are not just conceptual. They're certainly not just a list of key words to memorize. Anthropology is hard. It's, it's hard to encounter people who are different from you, hard to open up to them, hard to listen to them and truly listen to them, hard to be empathic. So we wanted to create challenges that would actually allow people to challenge themselves to be this kind of person. And that's what we try to do with those challenges now. I remember so vividly the last time we had an opportunity to talk, you describing, I believe it was hitting the age of 30, although we know that's an arbitrary number, but but just this separation that that I remember you describing from your students. And I'm, I think that we're actually the same age. I'm also in my, I'm in my late forties. And I remember you sort of talking about that, that morning that you had to do a little bit around, gosh, I'm not one of them anymore. And yeah. yet this, this assignment, you, you seem to strike a chord that I can't quite even formulate a question around where you don't pretend that you're going to dance the same as them, or you don't, I mean, you don't pretend that you're going to be one of the cool kids. So that's, that that's right. what this experiment is about. But yeah. it's, it, I think it's a really difficult balance where I see some of my colleagues just keep themselves at such a distance and don't try to get anything about what's happening with their culture and in their lives. And then the ones that it's just this awkwardness of trying to be them and, and we're not. Yeah, it, that's exactly right. And like, how do you just completely be yourself mm-hmm. while also being of great value to them? You know, this is where it comes down to like teaching doesn't just happen in the classroom. It's like a constant meditation, right? And I I find myself constantly thinking about who are kids these days? Who do they need to be? What can I provide for them? And it's just this constant, constant thinking and meditating on that. And I think most importantly, kind of getting, you know, my own ego or self out of the way, you Mm -hmm. know, and and really thinking about about it from their perspective. What What do they need? Like not not what do I need to do to make them like me? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like (laughs) what do they really need? And, you know, I think we each have different gifts and we have to figure out what those gifts are. I think one of the things that I can give them, for example, that I work really hard at is I essentially try to wrestle with really difficult intellectual problems that I know that they have to deal with Mm -hmm. and then try to, you know, mentor them a little bit on, you know, what I've, what I've found in, in trying to wrestle with that question. I don't know. Some people are against lecturing. And I agree that most lecturing isn't so great, right? When you're just like sort of going through keywords and stuff. But I think there's something of value when somebody who's been working in a field for 20 years or so wrestles with a really meaningful, important question that students are wrestling with as well. And you spend, say, you know, 20 hours wrestling with it and then come in and so I'll put lecture in quotes here, but you're really like doing sort of like a intellectual dance with them, right? And you're wrestling with something and it's an honest wrestling. You know, it's not that you know the answer and you let them participate. You let them 
ask questions. And then together you create this kind of beautiful space where you're all wrestling with these questions that are interesting to the students that are important to them. And, you know, obviously you have some expertise to, to add to that and you just have to, it's, it's a tough dance, but, <laughs> but that's what we, that's what we do. It's a very difficult dance. And, and in preparation to today's conversation, I, I wanted to bring forth this idea of desirable difficulties. And I actually mm. found out that that term was coined by Robert Bjork. And I'll put a link in the show notes. He's been on the show before, and I had no idea he was the one who coined that term. But it's showing up a lot in the scholarship of teaching and learning, this idea that we want to have a a learning task, or in your case, a challenge that requires a considerable but desirable amount of effort. And, mm-hmm. and his research bears out that that'll help improve the long-term performance. And there's a lot around this would show that sometimes in the short term, we don't see the payoff, but it's that deeper learning. Can you talk about how desirable difficulties play into your own teaching? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I think what I'm trying to do right now is in many ways, sort of engage students in a way that perhaps can increase that, that level of desirable difficulty, almost like increased desire, right? <laughs> By showing them that if you challenge yourself in this way, you can get very meaningful outcomes out of it. And I suppose, the, again, the best way I know how to do that is to always be doing the challenges myself. Mm-hmm. And then that not only helps me like revise the challenges if I have to, but it also allows me to be in the moment with them and share with them the difficulties that I'm facing. I, I guess what I think, I think that the desirable is actually like a, a variable here, right? Like how much desire is there? And then you can elevate the difficulty based on that. And there can be a natural elevation of the difficulty so that you can actually have like a, a low minimum bar for a challenge, for example. But some students will just throw themselves in and raise their own difficulty because of their desire. So I think the two things that I know that can raise that desire is one, a lot of sort of context and showing them like why it matters. But the other thing is peace is creating a community where everybody's going through the same difficulty. And that, you know, we know (laughs) anthropology studies all over the world is like shared difficulty creates tremendous community. So you have like a nice interplay between those two is if you can create something difficult, a great challenge, and then also have community nurtured at the same time, the two will play off of each other. And they'll be willing to do more while also creating more community in the classroom. Last night in my class, we had a wonderful guest speaker come and and a lot of what he was sharing was a framework for how to tell our stories. And another of my colleagues was there. And so we're in a conversation and all of a sudden I hear my name being called and I realize I've been volunteered to tell my story up in front. And let's just say I hadn't quite anticipated that, but it ended up to be a story that I hadn't really expected to resonate so much with them. But I think they saw me more human because I talked about a time when I was very fearful in my life and specifically some financial instability where I was convinced I couldn't go grocery shopping and had to eat everything out of the pantry that I had bought when I was sick. You know, those cans of soup that you never end up eating while you're sick and they just sit there. And it seemed to really resonate. And I, and I kept thinking about how as you're putting yourself into these challenges, Mike, that yes, it's a part of your story, but you're so gifted at making a part of 
all of our stories. And when I listened to Life 101, and in fact, just the other day, I recommended it to a student who was listening to some very bad podcasts from my perspective. <laughs> like, I got to get this guy out of here. And I said, he really yeah. is just a gifted storyteller, but is hearing some uh, untruthful stories from my perspective. And I'm like, here's what I really want you to go listen to. And he was just so fired up after he had a mm-hmm. chance to talk. But how much do you think about that? I mean, you talked about earlier separating our ego, separating ourselves. And I think that could to some people sound flippant, but I'm convinced that there's more to it than that with you. I mean, what are you doing in terms of just preparing to tell these stories that you know they're going to resonate more universally? Oh man, I, I wish I had an exact formula (laughs) for that, but yeah, I agree. It sounds flippant. And when you talk about like, you know, don't let the ego be the center because everything I'd want to say, I think, would still sort of sound flippant and mm-hmm. maybe get misunderstood. So, for example, in storytelling circles, like people will talk a lot about how, you know, you have to have a reason for the story. It has to be relevant. It has to resonate. It has to have rhythm. It has to be real. I always think of these as like the five R's, you know. So that's not untrue, right? It, there has to be a reason for the story. It has to be relevant. It has to have resonance. It has to be, have rhythm. It has to be real. Okay, those are those are great. Five R's, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> then, like, how do you actually do that? You know, like that's that's where I think there's a disconnect because nothing I could tell you in the next five minutes will make you a great storyteller. You just have to really, really sit with and think deeply. And this is where, like, I don't think it's flipping at all to cut away the ego. Is like, how do you like sit and think about, or even better, like sit with students and talk to them and remove yourself and really try to hear them and really try to listen to them and understand the context in which they live and the life that they're trying to shape and the intellectual challenges they're having without getting your own ego in there, without getting your own politics in there, without getting whatever it is, you know, that's really difficult, but that's the only way to getting to the place where I think you can make those, the the so-called five R's like (laughs) really come alive. How do you know that the reason for your story is a worthwhile reason unless you know your students? How do you know if it's relevant if you don't know your students? How do you know if it's going to resonate if you don't know your students? How do you know what the right rhythm is if you don't know your students? You know, every single R depends on knowing your students and knowing other people ultimately requires like some diminishment of ego in some way. I mean, we could flesh that out a little bit more, I guess, like, you know, ego typically would be made up of like your fears, uh, mm-hmm. like maybe you're afraid that they're not going to like you. Maybe you're afraid that they're going to think you're stupid. And if you teach from those spaces, you end up not being the best teacher you can be, you know, cause you end up teaching to like basically impress them and make them think that you're smart and hope that they like you. And that can lead to just I don't know. Just uh, it doesn't it doesn't lead to resonance. It doesn't lead to relevance. It leads to you like using big words to sound smart. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? So I don't know. That's tough stuff. I, I mean, all I can say is that I wrestle with it, wrestle with it, wrestle with it, and then I go in the classroom, and sometimes it succeeds, and a lot of times it fails. And when it fails, I just come back to my office and I lay down on the floor and I figure out like what went wrong there, you know, <laughs> and you just think really deeply about it and, until you can figure it out. When Derek Bruff was on the podcast recently, 
he told a beautiful story about his daughter making a video and she entered a contest, ended up winning the contest, if I'm remembering the story right. And one of the things he shared about was how much footage she had to generate just to get something like a two-minute video. And Derek, I apologize in advance because I'm going to be way off with my numbers, but it was something like three hours of footage for two minutes. So it was that that extreme of a difference between those. And I think that's part of the thing that when I look at your work and you're just so brilliant, I keep thinking about the some of the videos that are on ANTH 101, ANTH 101, that mm-hmm. it just feels like I'm with you. You're putting your bike helmet on, you're <laughs> getting the shoes on, and I just, I don't even enjoy riding bikes and I feel like I'm having a great time riding the bike with you. And that just envelopment in Every single piece of video I've ever seen you do, that it looks effortless, but it's not, correct? I mean, that's how much yeah, gets left on your editing floor in terms of just your idea <laughs> generation? And then once you actually pull the camera out, could you talk a little yeah. bit about that process? Well, every, I mean, so that that number that you got is about right. It's, it's typically like 100 to 1 in terms of footage to act, what actually ends up. And then that doesn't even begin to speak to like all the scraps of you know, scripts that get left behind that never even get shot, you know? So it's a tremendously difficult process. And even then, like, so the stuff you're referring to, like I was making like two years ago, Mm -hmm. and you know, I look back at that stuff and I'm like, you know, I'm not happy with it anymore. You know, like I'm exploring like new storytelling styles and trying, going to try something new. And I've been working on that for like two years, kind of behind the scenes. I've never shown anybody (laughs) the work, you know, I show like close colleagues and friends the work, you know, to get feedback, but I haven't released it to the public yet. So yeah, I mean, I'm just always doing that. And I think the important thing here is I think our, we're, our whole media world is filled with people doing things that look effortless. (laughs) They're actually Mm -hmm. like full of difficulty and that can, lead people thinking like, man, I'm, I'm no good at this, you know? So you have to, if you, if you want to do this kind of thing, you have to realize like just how hard other people are working and not get discouraged when you see something that looks great effortlessly. And then you're looking at your stuff and being like, man, this, this is terrible. <laughs> you know, Cause I, I deal with that a lot as well. And, and definitely my biggest gateway to procrastination is my perfectionism. Mm-hmm. And so I have to like be really careful about how I look at other people's material and make sure, again, this is sort of like getting ego out of it. It's just sort of every day you have to just do work to get better. In fact, all the video work I ever do is in a folder on my computer that's called practice. Mm. So <laughs> every time I start video editing, like I remember it's practice, it's practice. Oh. You know? You have generously allowed me to show one of your video pieces, which I'll be talking about a little bit later on in some speaking that I've been doing. And one of the things I always try to follow it up with, because of that, I mean, it's too easy to look at what you do and go, okay, that's not me. Um, Sign me out. And so I show a drawing that I do. I do a little bit of pen casting, which for listeners who may not be familiar with that is where I draw and it's taking a video of me drawing and then I speak over it. I almost give a lecture over on top of my little seven-year-old drawing and I just feel the room move where they go oh my gosh I'm so embarrassed on her behalf (laughs) I can't believe she just showed that and I mean it is 
it is sort of embarrassing, except that it's also part of me to say like, no, you don't get to give up that easy. I don't get to give up that easy that if I can't set my ego aside, I don't do this for my students. And I got to have dinner about four months ago with a student who she's been out of school for three or four years and she can still I, I experimented with this, and it's very simple instructional design, whole part, whole. And so uh-huh. I experimented in consumer behavior where I would try to, in the beginning, those first couple of of classes, do the whole. And this is this is all of consumer behavior. And it was a hand-drawn image of a T-shirt, and there's things written and some tattoos on there. And then there's holding a shopping bag on one hand and a television, old-fashioned television with antennae on the other. And she could still tell me she remembered things from that drawing because then it would zoom in yeah. within weeks two, three, four, et cetera. And then it zoomed back out and I kept doing this, this thing. Yeah. It's very childlike in terms of the drawing. And I, and they dig, they giggle when they first see it, like, did your son draw that for you? No, actually that's me, yeah. but they remember. So if I can just get out of the way and yeah. we don't have to start that big, we don't have to start at 100 to one. What if we just started at three to one or five to one, oh. you know? Yeah, and honestly, with, with video and, and especially with online teaching, I think it's so important to like have a personal presence, you know, in some way and your voice and your image like are mm-hmm. are just really profound personal <laughs> pieces. And so I would say even just turning on your smartphone on selfie mode and talking to your students for a couple minutes off the cuff and throwing that up there and just invite them to do the same, you know, as the first thing you do in the class. It's just like, it's so simple. And then you're not setting the bar high because you're just saying like, hey, you know, I'm just, I turn on my phone. Can you guys do the same? And then send it back. And and then I do that at the beginning of my classes and just my online classes. And I just keep it as a, as a pin discussion at the top. So then when people are talking throughout the semester, they can just go back and read, see other people's introductions as well. Mm-hmm. And that's like a really low level entry level into, you know, the video world. And I just really think it, helps with with that presence that sense of presence and connection it's it's so important I took an online class with Sean Michael Morris a year or two ago and he had the same thing where show us where you where are you right now where show us the space that you're working in or or taking this in and there was a woman who she showed us she was a motorcycle rider she had just finished her ride it was just like oh my gosh and talk about being able to see the world through our students and our fellow learners eyes it's really powerful it is and that's what I I really have come to love teaching online because I do these challenges and these challenges often have a photograph or and sometimes a video component and boy that just it's just so great and uh, you know it's I, people will <laughs> think this is impossible to save it wow i mean i love my online class and i think sometimes there's so many things that are better than the in-person class and one of the big things is this use of video that we do and and i feel like i get to know the students so much better in their actual environment and you know i also lecture out in the world so to speak you know so i don't think about what would i say in a classroom when I prepare for a quote lecture, (laughs) I think about what do I want to say and where can I go out in the world to show my students how this works? And then I go out in the world and try to do that, which that that's my favorite thing to do about. And it's really changed my mind about teaching online. Before we go on to the recommendation segment, I'd love to have you share a little bit more about what you're doing now, but also your future plans for, for the, this work. 
Well, so uh, I'm taking a sabbatical here in a couple months, and I'm going to take my whole family, uh, including my three boys, ages six, nine, and 12. And we're basically going to go around the world (laughs) and do some of these like out in the world lectures. So as an anthropologist studying all humans in all times and all places, uh, it just made sense to actually go out in the world and uh, create content for my online classes by going to interesting places and talking to people about how they actually live their lives, you know, rather than just talking about it in the classroom. So I'm going to be gone all next spring doing that, um, traveling with my family. That's pretty much all I can think about right now because that's a, that's a big project to put together. Yeah, so. Before we get to today's recommendations, I wanted to share a little bit about today's sponsor, and that is Text Expander. You can really unlock your productivity with Text Expander. Take those repetitive tasks that we do, things that we type repetitively in our text documents and spreadsheets and web forms and more, and also across teams help keep our messages more consistent by sharing snippets with each other. And Text Expander for Teams even lets us save those in a collaborative way and have more consistent communication and really ease the road for responding to those commonly asked questions. Text Expander is available for the Mac, it's available for Windows, it's on Chrome, and it's also on the iPad and iPhone. It's really essential to me in my productivity. I just type a few keystrokes, for example, and up pops the show notes variables for an episode. So what's the episode number? Who's the guest? And that gets populated a number of times across the show notes for a given episode. It's a really wonderful way to save yourself some time so that we can spend it doing the important things. I talk about this at the start of every episode, being more present for our students. And and to me, that means the world when I can save a little bit of time. In fact, I get an email from Text Expander that tells me just how much time I saved, and it really does make a difference in my workflow. Thanks again, to Text Expander for sponsoring today's episode. My first recommendation will not be a stranger to you because it is one of your videos. It is The Sleeper, and I alluded to it earlier. This video has transformed my teaching and my thinking. And you mentioned that this is not just the work that we do once. I have to, it's a good thing that you've allowed me to show it in so many of my talks because (laughs) it's like I just need to keep being reminded of it. And in case people haven't seen it, you definitely should click on the link in the show notes, but it's really a story of misperception. And I would say it's also probably a story of ego. And I just wanted to share a quick story that had happened to me. I I wish I could say it was years ago and I've learned so much, but it just was (laughs) A couple of weeks ago, I, there's a student who she's very expressive in my class. And so I can, I can often tell what kind of a day that she's having, but I keep making the mistake of thinking this is somehow about me. And it happened most recently where I had a guest speaker coming in. And, and as regular listeners might remember, I really like this gadget called the meeting owl. And the meeting owl sits in the middle of a table and it's got a 360 degree camera on the top of it. And so it integrates really nicely with Zoom. And if somebody starts talking across the room from me, it'll automatically focus the camera on them. And it's just really seamless. And it kind of looks like the Brady Bunch, but not in um, quite as equal proportions of the frame. And I I just couldn't figure out what it was. I'm talking, I'm sharing something before the guest speaker joins and I'm just, what is going on? And I think it's about me and I'm 
really is testing my patience because I'm, you know, I was getting apprehensive having someone come in and you hope that the students will connect and all of this. And I wanted to go like, what is it? But I, I kept myself calm. What's, you know, what's going on? And she, oh, I'm having a bad day. And every time that camera looks at me, I'm just reminded of how bad of a day it is and how bad I look. Hmm. And I thought, oh, Bonnie, you did it again. Like You thought this was about you. And it, it's not about you. Why do you, you know, why did, why is this such a wrestling you described it as earlier? So yeah. I just think we can't watch the sleeper enough and we can't learn from those lessons enough. And I think it's a really great thing that I've learned not to vocalize every thought that comes into my head because I'd be a much worse teacher for it. Yeah, that's uh, um, definitely true. We misread our students all the time when yeah. we think it's about us. Yeah. And that's one of the most common things that we do. Yeah. And then my second recommendation is a graphic novel or a, I guess they call it a graphic narrative. It's called Out on the Wire. It's by Jessica Abel. And it also reminded me a lot as in reading it of what lands on the editing floor, which I talked about earlier. Yeah. So it lets us go behind the scenes of seven of today's most popular narrative radio shows and podcasts, including This American Life and Radio Lab. And it's just phenomenal. I, I know many of these podcasts to, so to get to see some of the behind the scenes of what it took to get that kind of rich audio is just such a delight. And I am not a big reader of that format of book. And it was really fun. I really enjoyed it. So I, I suggest yeah. that people go check out that book. Yeah, I love that book. I actually use it as a textbook for my digital ethnography class where we talk about storytelling, like real storytelling of real life stories. So it's just fantastic. And uh, that she also has a podcast that went along with that. So she recorded herself as she interviewed all these people that became part of that graphic novel. And so there's like, I think 13 episodes. I um, didn't know that. Yeah, they're, they're great. And there's even uh, workshops that go along with it and it's all free. So if you want to teach from that, it's absolutely fantastic. Oh, I will definitely be looking that up. So can I put that yeah. under your recommendations added to the list? Because <laughs> yeah, sure. I don't uh, want yeah. other people to miss out. You, yeah, You've opened a big box here of things that I love when you mention that. But yeah, uh, I'd say the thing that I love recently is that DaVinci Resolve uh, video editing program is now free. There's a studio version that's like $300, but you really don't need it. I Boy, it's so feature rich. It's a great alternative to... Adobe Premiere. It's a high-end editing program, completely free. It, I think they're making a play here to basically just grab some market share. Uh, everybody loves it. Lots of people switching to it, even the pros. So definitely use that. I highly recommend it if you're editing anything. And it's a great, great way to get started because it's pretty simple. Along with that, you can go check out like free video websites like Videvo, where you can get download like free video clips. So if you're, if you're shy about being on camera, for example, you're teaching online or just trying to create a video for your class, you don't necessarily have to be on camera. You can grab some of these awesome clips and put them down and start editing and lay a narrative over the top of it. And you can actually do some pretty cool storytelling and great videos just, just like that. Those are the two big ones. Oh, and I also, I made a video about teaching online that is really close to my heart right now. So if people want to check out that out, that's 10 tips for online teaching. We'll, we'll put it in the show notes, I'm sure. So um, yeah, I, that's very close to my heart right now because I, I really think online teaching can be done well and uh, there's a big future in online teaching and I think we, we have to do it well or you know, the quality of education in general is not going to be so great since 
so much is going to be online, I think, in the future. And you spoke of this when you talked about having yourself do the challenges, and that's what keeps them so great. If we're not learning online ourselves, we're never going to be good online educators, and that seems such a disconnect. Yeah, it's a a strange world right now where there's never been a better time for learning, right? Like you can just learn so much. And there's so many great teachers out there who are not calling themselves teachers, right? We're just, we're all just sharing fantastic material together online. And that really changes the role of the teacher. So I think we need to, I mean, we've been thinking about it now for a couple of decades, uh, but I, I, I think it's getting to be crunch time here where we really need to think deeply about our role as, as educators in this new sort of landscape and no better way to do that than to pay attention to how you're learning online and then think about how you could mentor your students to be better learners in this new media landscape as well. Mike Wesh, it's been such a pleasure to get to have this additional conversation with you. I, I'm just so honored and, and just love your work so much. Thank you for your time. Well, thank you for everything you're doing. This is, uh, I think this is like the hub for me for learning new things. And so this is a very valuable thing that you do for the community. So thank you so much. Thanks once again to Mike Wesh for being a guest on today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. It was so great to reconnect with you and so looking forward to hearing how your sabbatical goes and all the adventures you and your family will go on. This is episode number 282. If you'd like to see the show notes and the transcript for the episode, you can go to teachinginhighered.com slash 282. And if you'd like to subscribe to the weekly update where you'll get the show notes in your inbox as well as an article about teaching or productivity written by me, you can subscribe at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. We've got some great episodes coming up. I hope you'll share the podcast with your friends and give it a rating or a review on whatever service it is you use to listen to it. Thanks so much for listening to this episode and we'll see you next time on Teaching in Higher Ed.